0: wherever you are anyway god bless you and i hope you enjoy the podcast well we've made it through the first week of 2021 and i think it's safe to say that it wasn't the week that any of us would have hoped for um it's left us all a bit speechless it's been a hard week it's been a hard week for me it's been a hard week for our staff and and I and I imagine that we are all feeling some of the same things. The difference is this morning is, as your pastor, I'm expected to address it. <laughs> no, seriously, um, being a pastor is not easy. It cert- certainly, it hasn't been easy in the last few years. Uh, all kinds of things. taking place in our culture, shifts, changes, turmoil, division, all kinds of things to be up in arms about, to be concerned about, to be anxious about. And we've had many instances, as we've seen this week, not quite like this one, but many other instances, things making national news, that we've had to stop what we're doing, change our plans, and address it to lament, to grieve, to speak prophetically, to speak the truth in love, to offer pastoral wisdom and advice moving forward. And So I'd like to address that just to begin with before we get into this first sermon in our series today. Uh, You know, as a pastor, my calling and role is to preach the Scriptures, to preach Christ, to lead other people to Jesus and to hopefully to shape our worldview uh, in a biblical way, in a Christ-centered way, that we would, that I would, lead other people to the God who looks like Jesus. I'm not perfect in that. Um, I'm always trying to think about the best way to do that, when to speak, when not to speak, uh, what avenues I should speak in. I Many of you notice I don't, often post uh, on social media at times like this, I personally find that most of that kind of thing simply adds to the noise. It makes me anxious. It makes other people anxious. It's not really the most helpful thing in the world. Uh, Being together as the church and certainly tuning in virtually through COVID, I think is most helpful and is more of the kind of context that I've been called to speak into, to share the truth, to speak the truth in love, uh, to people that I know, and that I'm in relationship with, as a community of believers. So, y- you should know that. <laughs> you should know that that's what goes on, at least in this pastor's mind. And one of the reasons why my heart is heavy today, much like your heart is heavy, isn't just because of the events themselves, but the kinds of things that we see Christians posting. People who mean to do a lot of good, whether you're on the right politically, the left politically it doesn't matter. Often we're just contributing to the noise, and it grieves my heart. I think it grieves the Lord, too. Uh, as I see people, well-meaning people in our own congregation who, who post things, I have to be honest with you and tell you as a pastor, I don't think it really helps folks. Uh, what we really need is a radical new way of living and of being, of, of having relationships with one another, especially our enemies, Bridging divides, truly believing in reconciliation, um, and the power of of reaching out rather than calling out. It's gotten us nowhere as a church uh, to simply think that the best way to tell the truth is to call people out instead of doing the hard, patient, courageous work of reconciliation. So I want you to think about that with everything that's been going on and and know that my deepest desire for you is that we would follow Jesus together. I mean, truly take the teachings of Jesus seriously and live it out, knowing, as we've talked so much here at Grantham, that Jesus does not conform to your political ideologies. He does not conform uh, to an American Jesus. Uh, he does not fit into any of our boxes neatly and nicely. Uh, and when you think that he does, you're already way past, uh, across the line that um, is very scary and troubling. As, as that kind of Jesus becomes a cheerleader for our causes and fuels our own agendas. Um, the true Jesus is always challenging us. We're, we're None of us get off the hook. None of us get off easy. We're constantly challenged by Jesus to reflect on our attitudes, our behaviors, our actions, and to confess and to repent when we've gone astray and to lovingly walk with others uh, on the Jesus path. And one way that we've sought to do that here at Grantham is talk about being a third-way congregation. We're addressing injustice without mixing the gospel With partisan politics. Now that's not easy, and as soon as I begin to speak on one justice issue or this justice issue, that justice issue, uh, because it may fit into one political party's talking points, it's real easy to put me or others uh, in that camp. But I assure you I'm trying to do something much different. Uh, So I've called us to follow Jesus. I've called us and been calling us to this third way. And to speak the truth in love. You know, the culture today is really, at least a segment of the culture, is all about speaking the truth and and as I said, calling people out. But the Scriptures, particularly Paul in Ephesians, tells us to speak the truth in love. And too often we confuse our vengeance for God's justice. And if we want to get this right, again, we have to look at Christ. So, I just want to start there this morning and say this is not an easy thing to do. It's not not an easy time to be a leader. You either you're saying too much. According to some people, you're not saying enough. According to others, you're trying to hold together a political spectrum within your church, but at the same time preach the truth and be willing to lose people that might not like you proclaiming Christ the way that you are. It's a, it's a hard thing. And part of my role is to be an influencer I, and, a, and a persuader. I'm trying to persuade people as best I can to keep us at the table and to follow Jesus together. Again, often knowing as Jesus did that not everyone will be willing to stay at the table, but my greatest desire is just that. And folks that aren't pastors just don't understand that, especially today. But I want you to hear a little bit of my heart and, and, and speaking from the perspective of a, of a pastor because you're probably not going to hear it from any other place. Uh, I'm not interested in be, being politically correct. I'm not interested in in, in simply being diplomatic. Um, but I am interested in being pastoral in the way that I see Jesus uh, calling us to. Just as he was the chief shepherd, I am the little shepherd of this congregation. And I want to do the best I can. I want to do the best I can. I want you to hear my heart when I say that. Um, pray for your leaders. Pray for your, your, your pastor, of course. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your board Pray for pastors across the country uh, who are leading in a very difficult time. As we all pray for you, as we pray that our congregations would follow Jesus and would repent of our idolatry, would repent of the many ways in which we have reflected a God who does not look like Jesus. So I, I preface this message by saying all of that um, I hope that you can hear my heart. I hope that you can you can hear that I love you, I love the church, and most of all, I love Jesus, which shapes the way I view everything. And it shapes the way I view the events of this past week. As you all know by now, there was a rally and protest held by Donald Trump uh, on the day that the election results were being finalized in the Senate. The protest eventually turned into a riot and insurrection. A mob broke into the Capitol building, and all five people have died, at least so far. Uh, Charges and arrests are happening as I record this message on Saturday. And I want to be clear about this church. And keep in mind all the things that I've just said. The insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021, by radical right-wing Trump supporters wasn't just about their belief that the election was fraudulent. They certainly believed that based on no evidence. But it was also the culmination of Donald Trump's presidency, one built upon fear, lies, uh, conspiracy theories, scandals, violent, violent rhetoric, bad religion, and white supremacy. Take a look at this photo taken of one of the insurrectionists. You've probably seen one like this. As one staff writer for the Atlantic said, this photo really captures everything that we've seen in the last few years and captures what happened on Wednesday for many reasons, all of which I won't go into at the moment. But just look at this picture of this man who who is made in God's image, but broken and not as he should be, that Jesus loves who's obviously embraced an ideology and for whatever reason has come to this moment in his life where he's taken a Confederate battle flag, uh, broken in with, his, with other insurrectionists into the U.S. Capitol building and, and is walking through that building uh, with this symbol, of racism and white supremacy. Now look, I grew up in Texas, I grew up in the South, and I know the arguments. I know what was in the textbooks. If you wanna say, no, the Civil War was all about states' rights, it it wasn't, had much to do with slavery. And folks, this is simply not based on the facts or even the words from the leaders of the Confederacy themselves. And so I think that we need, if you're one of those who have not yet been convinced, you really need to seriously take a long, hard look at this. Uh, Because this picture is symbolic of what is wrong, what is deeply wrong with our country today. It is real. Racism is real, and it is alive today. It's no secret that America was built upon the backs of African slaves uh, who were originally deemed by the U.S. Constitution as three-fifths of a human being. It also uh, was founded and built upon the near extermination of Native American tribes. Um, I'd encourage you to check out some documentaries on these things. Um, I know Ken Burns has a documentary on the West that's really good, uh, as well as the Ken Burns documentary on on the Civil War. Abolitionist movements arose in the 19th century, but because the U.S. was founded upon violence, let's be honest about that, uh, it then resorted to violence to try and settle the matter of slavery and the division between the North and the South. This is the way of the world and unfortunately the way of the world is to think that's the only way things can get done is through violence and followers of Jesus we should believe otherwise. And as a result of this belief and in, in, in the myth of redemptive violence, half a million people died in that war. That is no insignificant thing, and it is no wonder that we're still seeing the consequences of that today. If we're truthful and honest, uh, you know, you can see that the North, the Union, they won the war, but that simply suppressed the racism and those deep feelings of resentment, particularly in the South and sympathizers with the South. And over the years, we've seen the ongoing struggle for equality and the pursuit of of racial justice. Uh, Racism and white supremacy continued through things like Jim Crow laws, uh, the KKK, and other white supremacist groups. Segregation, uh, redlining, the criminalization and mass incarceration of African Americans allowed by uh, the 13th Amendment. If you haven't seen the documentary on Netflix, 13th, I encourage you to watch that. And and it's then, of course, seen in the many stories uh, of recent years of police brutality and, and murders by the militarization of our police. And it's not hard to see the stark contrast between the militarized response to the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and the unpreparedness, or maybe we should say the intentional withholding of National Guard troops at the Capitol this past week. There's actually evidence that that occurred. Despite the progress made by the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the outcries for racial justice today in light of George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and others, racism and white supremacy, which which we're calling America's original sin, is still very much deeply ingrained in our society. And folks, it can never be healed. It can never be reconciled. Uh, There can never be reparations. There can never be healing and true progress until we acknowledge it in all of its evilness and wickedness. And that has to do, of course, with the purpose of this series, Pursuing Racial Justice, How the Gospel Confronts America's Original Sin. As Christ followers, we want to ask questions like, what does the gospel have to say about this? What should Christians do in response to racial injustice? You know, I'd venture to say that most people in our congregation and those listening uh, to this podcast know that this is a problem, at least to some extent, you know that. The question, of course, is what do we do about it? How should we respond? Where do we go from here? That's what this series is all about. But if for some reason you're still not convinced of the seriousness of this issue and you're open to learning more, our Peace and Social Justice Commission here at Grantham has created a suggested reading list to help educate and to grow us in our understanding. And you can find that list in the recent edition of our Peace Matters newsletter, uh, which you can access at the Peace and Social Justice page at GranthamChurch.org. Uh, there you'll also find this series outline and lineup. Uh, We have a lot of great speakers joining us virtually this year. Hank Johnson, who we spoke to earlier this morning in a learning community. Next week in a learning community, Todd Allen will be with us and talk about the history of racism in the U.S. Uh, Greg Boyd will be our speaker next week. I'm very excited about my friend and mentor coming back to Grantham. Uh, at least virtually, uh, to contribute to this series. Dina Gonzalez-Pina with Mennonite Central Committee will be in a learning community. Uh, Dominique Gilliard will be with us. He's the author of Rethinking Incarceration. And then our own Drew Hart, who teaches at Messiah University, will be our Peace Sunday speaker. Stay tuned for more information about Peace Sunday and our offering this year, uh, which will go to several different local uh, efforts. So I hope that you'll join us for this series. It's a serious series. It's a timely series. And it'll also be not just informative, but a practical series, which is usually uh, the most helpful, right? That we're asking the questions, what can I do? Okay, I get it. What can I do? Uh, We want to try to help with that, all right? Real quick, would you say a prayer with me uh, as we begin the message today? Father, we need your Holy Spirit. Lord, these are difficult things, they're not only hard, Lord, because they've been politicized. They're hard because they are are, are deeply integrated and rooted in spiritual things. Father, That, that we, we recognize that Satan himself uh, and the demonic realm have used these issues to polarize us and to cause us to come at an impasse often, uh, even denying that it's real and it's true. Lord, would you break down those barriers today? Would you break down those walls specifically uh, within our heart? God, would you give us the ability to understand, the ability to see, and the courage to do something about it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was a Jew. Right? He was a Jew. He was not white. And if you've been regularly engaged at Grantham or you've been following our sermon podcast, you know that we did a series in the fall leading up to the election. It was called The Politics of Jesus, Following Christ in the American Empire. And on that graphic for that series, we used a portrait of Jesus that was created by artificial intelligence. And uh, I used that so that it would help to uh, maybe to jar us, uh, to challenge us, uh, to really to put the historical Jesus into perspective, that Jesus is a Middle Eastern man. Even in his resurrected body, one day you, you and I who believe in him will all meet him, will meet this Jesus. It may not look exactly like this picture, but something like that. You see, because Jesus was from a minority ethnic group, historically known as the Hebrews, who had a long history of slavery, exile, and oppression. And that oppression continued with the Roman Empire in the first century. The Jews were occupied by the Romans and exploited uh, as the outer rim and the backwater of the empire. The term Jew itself would have likely been used by the Romans in a derogatory way. I know uh, coming from Texas and Mexico uh, on our border, um, I grew up in in an all white racist town. We had no black people in our town. And even his, for the Hispanics were the, that were there, we were very racist toward them. Uh, we had certain names that we gave them. I mean, even when we described them as Mexicans, which is what they are, that was used in a derogatory way. Sort of like how the Romans put a sign over the head of Jesus, said the king of the Jews. It didn't say the king of Israel. It didn't say the, the so-called Messiah. Uh, of the people of Israel. It said, the king of the Jews. It reminds me of a, a scene in the Passion of the Christ uh, when they are forcing uh, a Jew to carry the cross of Jesus and they look down at him and say, Udiah, you know, like you stupid Jew. Um, Jesus would have grown up with this. Jesus would have known what it was like to be a part of the oppressed. So we can't overlook. How Jesus did not come from a powerful and privileged group of people, but instead he came from from an oppressed people. And he came for oppressed people everywhere. Uh, Therefore, it's important to hear how the good news of Jesus is not just about the forgiveness of sins and inward spiritual change. It's also about justice and setting the captives free. Which is why I'd like to begin our series by briefly showing us how racial justice is rooted in the gospel that Christ proclaimed and how we too must pursue it together as a church. So it made sense to start our series here as a sort of set us up. Uh, for the next few weeks look at Luke chapter 4 beginning verse 14 through verse 21 Uh, in the politics of Jesus series I called this the inaugural address of Jesus this is when Christ goes to Nazareth his hometown and preaches his first message after having gained a reputation for a miracle worker uh, a, a powerful teacher and possibly the Messiah And verse 14 reads, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This would have been uh, the chapter 61. Isaiah 61, he unrolled it, he found the place where it is written. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, let's look at those things there that are highlighted. What does Jesus mean by all of these things which he is quoting from Isaiah? The poor refers to those living in poverty, but it also included those of lower social status, outsiders, the marginalized, the voiceless, And people living on the fringes. Uh, While it can include the poor in spirit, as a Gospel writer says, it most definitely refers to those who are physically poor. And we will see Jesus proclaiming good news to the poor and lifting them up from their plight all throughout the Gospels. Then look at this uh, other phrase, freedom for the prisoners. The New Revised Standard Version says, release to the captives. Obviously, the literal sense here is getting people out of jail which is a good thing, particularly for uh, the wrongly accused or those who have been unfairly sentenced. Although we we don't see Jesus doing that in his ministry, it does happen later in the book of Acts and will become the basis for abolition movements and for prison reform all throughout history. And Praise the Lord for that. But we should also notice that in Luke, the freedom for the prisoners looks like setting people free from bondage to spiritual evil through exorcism and uh, healings. After all, you can set people free from a jail cell, but they can still live in their own private hell uh, as a free person. And then Jesus says, recovery of sight for the blind. If you recall, Jesus literally opened the eyes of blind people in the Gospels, but we can also see how Jesus opens eyes in a spiritual sense for people to see the truth and come into the kingdom and for people like Nicodemus to be born again. And so we shouldn't make the mistake as post-enlightenment Westerners often do of wanting to choose either a literal interpretation or a spiritual one. Instead we need to hold them together. For Jesus and his, his Jewish audience, they both reflect the reality of God's creation. We live in a physical material world that is mysteriously connected to the spiritual realms and spiritual matters. And then Jesus says to set the oppressed free. That can apply to so many people in situations today. Uh, But in the context, they specifically would have thought of how the empire was oppressing and subjugating them, making them exiles and prisoners in their own land. And then look at verse 19. This would be Isaiah 61, verse 2. Jesus reads, the year of the Lord's favor. He came to proclaim that. What's that about? Well, this refers to the Jewish concept of the Jubilee year in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8 through 10. And I say concept, as I did in our Politics of Jesus series, because there isn't any historical evidence that Israel ever practiced it. That's because Jubilee required that every 50 years debt be forgiven, slaves go free, that people stop charging interest on loans, that you treat each other with fairness, and make it possible that everyone receives what they need to live and to be an equal contributing member of society. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann said that the the Jubilee is about the rehabilitation of life out of impoverishment, powerlessness, and despair. The idea behind Jubilee is that it's the way a community in trouble can resolve and restore what is broken, and what's run amok. And the vision of Jubilee, which offers profound hope for the disadvantaged and the downtrodden church, is understandably devastating to those who benefit from maintaining the status quo and keeping things the way that they are. And you know that there are always people who are like this, a system that has given them power and privilege over others. Uh, so they can you can see why there isn't any evidence that this was ever actually practiced. Yet it does reflect where God wants to take the world. It's certainly what Jesus had in mind when he preached the gospel. As one commentator writes, when understood literally, the passage says the Christ is God's servant who will bring to reality the longing and hope for the poor, uh, the oppressed, and the imprisoned. The Christ will usher in the amnesty, the liberation, and the restoration associated with the proclamation of the year of Jubilee. Now that sounds exciting, right? But as you know, not everyone likes the idea and how it applies. And as you continue to read this story of Jesus in Nazareth uh, preaching to the hometown, uh, they don't like what he has to say. They don't like the implications of this message and will eventually reject it, even trying to kill Jesus. Now notice this, Jesus says that he has come to proclaim or announce these things. Now why is that important? Certainly, Jesus did some of these things, but it's really important that we notice first that he said, I've come to proclaim them. That's important because it means that this work has simply begun with Christ. It's an invitation for us to join him. Too often, people miss this about the Gospels. They miss this about the New Testament and the writings of Paul, uh, there is a progressive revelation going on as the gospel goes out and people begin to understand the gospel and, and, and understand the implications of what Jesus meant. They, be, they begin to do it. And, and all through the first centuries of the church, they learn what it means to actually put these things into practice. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, everything is about to change. That's what Jesus means to say. The kingdom of God is coming. It is coming in me, Jesus is saying. God is is fulfilling his promises to Israel, which he prophesied through Isaiah, And he is going to not only bless Israel, but bless the world, because that was Israel's purpose all along, right? When you see who Jesus was, church, and you see who he is, and understand his ministry as liberating the world from spiritual and earthly, that is, social bondage, it will expand your view of the gospel, and it will transform the way you see what Christ is doing in the gospels and what he calls us to do as well what he's invited us to you see, once we've seriously considered the jewishness of jesus that he was once a refugee in egypt the first couple years of his life and that he was a religious jew a law-abiding jew through his life uh, that he was oppressed as a minority in his own land uh, we should pay careful attention at that point to the way he taught and the way he went to other oppressed people. And, of course, follow his example. Let me give you uh, uh, an example of what I'm talking about here. Let's recall one of the most well-known parables and reflect on how radical it was within his own context. Uh, You remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is told in response to the question, well, somebody want to know how do I achieve everlasting life? Um, Jesus says, you know, or he affirms the guy saying, love God, love your neighbor, and Jesus said, that's right, and the guy says, who's my neighbor, and then this parable is told to answer that question, who the neighbor is, so there's some, there's some debate, I mean, you could read the scripture in the Old Testament in a certain way, say, I'm only supposed to love my own kind, but Jesus has something else in mind. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So these upstanding Jews, they just walk on by. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. This is a word of challenge to his listeners. Jesus tells them to go and do likewise. Notice, Jesus goes beyond the ethical responsibility here of his readers, in this case, his listeners. Uh, This is usually how we approach the parable of the Good Samaritan, just do a good deed. The sort of the ethical responsibility. You You should do good. But Jesus is going beyond that in the context with this parable. He is challenging their ideas of ethnic superiority. Why is that? Because Samaritans in Jesus' day were despised. They were a mixed race of people who lived in an area between Galilee in the north and Judea and Jerusalem in the south. Uh, They were the offspring of Jews and Gentiles going back to the exile. So they were a mixed race of people with mixed religion The Jews thought that they were the worst. And so in other words, Jesus is saying, we Jews, through this parable, we Jews who pass on by are no better than the Samaritans. Even Samaritans can be good, right? So think about this. Jesus didn't reveal his heart for pursuing racial and ethnic justice and bridging and reconciling divides simply through scandalous parables. But also by embodying his teachings and going directly to those who were considered by the Jews to be the real scum of the earth. So not only was Jesus a minority and experienced what it meant to be an oppressed people, but there were even a a people group beneath Jesus. The Jews, so they saw it, that Jesus is challenging us uh, to consider and calling us to go to, because that's exactly what he does. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 38, many of you are familiar with the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, John tells us in his gospel that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, why does he say that? Because normally Jews would go around Samaria if they were going, let's say, from Jerusalem to Galilee in the north. They would cross the Jordan on the east and go up the east side of the Jordan and then cross back to go into Galilee. They would avoid at all costs going through this area. That's how much of a rivalry and and how much they despised one another. And there he meets a woman as he goes through Samaria. He meets a woman who's gathering water at a well at noontime, which is significant because it's not usually when women go to the well in the heat of the day. So why is she there? In conversation, Jesus tells her he knows why she's there all by herself at noon. It's because she's had multiple husbands. We don't know why that is the case. Uh, in in that day and age, uh, men had all the power when it came to divorce. So did this woman displease that many men? Did they did they die? Whatever the case is, this woman. Is by herself she's pretty much been abandoned uh, by all men and all people in her village even among the Samaritans she is despised nobody accepts her but Jesus look at this a Jewish man accepts her but Jesus isn't looking for a date as you might think is happening here if you look at other Old Testament stories of men meeting women at wells. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. Jesus instead wants to let her in on a little secret. And that is that he is the Messiah. And that is that he can restore her as he can restore you and me. And he can restore all of those who are outsiders and are oppressed. In this exchange, Jesus says, you'll recall in that story, that all who worship God in spirit and in truth should do so as one people and will do so one day. That time has come because Jesus has come because the kingdom has come. You may have heard this story many times, but I I think that we've probably missed the subversive meaning of it all. The apostles return. You'll you, you remember in this story, but they're confused. They they would remain confused why Jesus did this and what Jesus was going about on about until his death and resurrection, and when things become more clear. But because before then, uh, they're wanting to call fire down from heaven on these Samaritans and use using the Bible uh, to support that. But later they would understand, as I said, and later the Apostle Paul would understand as he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and becomes the greatest missionary in the New Testament and the early church. And listen to these words the Apostle Paul penned to the church in the region of Galatia. He said this in Galatians 3 verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. Now listen to what Paul is saying. He's, He's not saying we don't recognize those distinctions. Clearly, in the world, there are those distinctions. And in Paul's day, there were slaves. There were freed persons. He's saying, but as the world is, even now the kingdom has broken into the, the present, the future kingdom broken into the present and is changing the way we relate to one another. He's, it's changing this hierarchy. is equalizing everything, right? That, that in Christ, he says, you are all one. While Romans may have invited people to their table and they had this order of seating based on who was the most important and who was the lowest, who was the highest, who was the lowest. Jesus' table says we all come and we're all one. You may have certain tasks. You may be a male. You may be a female. You may be a Jew or Gentile. Uh, It doesn't matter what your role is, what your vocation is. When we come to the table, we are one in Jesus. And folks, we cannot miss the subversive meaning and power of this Christian belief, which is rooted in the gospel of Christ. It doesn't matter your color of skin and your status in life. In Jesus, we are all one. Jesus proclaimed the gospel that is the good news to the poor, to the prisoners, to the blind, and to those who are oppressed. He made it clear for us, church, as we can see in his life and his teachings and in the faith and the practices of the early church, that treating others the way that we want to be treated is God's will. And that lifting people up from their despair, becoming their allies even using our power and our privilege as we're able to free them from their bondage is what it means to embody the good news and proclaim the coming kingdom. And he not only calls us to do this, but also to sit, to listen, and to learn from the marginalized. As Dennis Edwards told us last year in our Politics of Jesus series, he said, the marginalized are often the best teachers, when it comes to knowing what it means to follow Jesus in the world today. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as we embark on this journey through our Pursuing Racial Justice series, may we be open to listening, learning, and living out what the Spirit is calling us to do for such a time as this. Father, I pray your blessings on our church. May we be your people, the people of your table, and may our bond in you be stronger than any bonds and beliefs and ideologies of the world. Lord, as we walk this path of pursuing racial justice, give us wisdom, give us patience, give us courage as we seek to embody who you are, and what you've called us to do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.